From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. On today's show, we welcome Steve Peterson. He's a retired science teacher, artist, amateur paleontologist, and incredible bird watcher. This morning, we're going to discuss the hummingbird and where they can be found here in the state. From the beautiful ruby-throated hummingbird to the vocal Anna's hummingbird, we'll talk about these interesting creatures from their small size to their unique flying ability. And Dr. Major is on hand to answer your pet questions. So join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or email the show animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Steve Peterson. He's a retired school teacher, an artist, an amateur paleontologist, an incredible bird watcher. So this morning we'll discuss the hummingbird and where they can be found here in Mississippi. From the beautiful ruby-throated hummingbird uh, to the vocal Anna's hummingbird, we'll talk about these interesting creatures from their small size to their unique flying ability. And Dr. Major is here ready to take your pet questions. So join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or you can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss part of Creature Comforts on Thursday mornings, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you know, I guess uh, Harvey has reminded us uh, that we're here in the really the active, most active part, I think, of hurricane season. And I think September, which starts tomorrow, is uh, considered to be a, a hurricane preparedness month. So, Dr. Major, uh, you know, I think as humans, we know to have, um, you know, uh, things set up, food ready, um, our, our, our medical records safely stored, those sorts of things. What are some things to think about uh, when it comes to our pets and, and staying safe uh, should uh, severe weather like a hurricane uh, arrive? Well, you know, hopefully we learned some lessons from Katrina, uh, even though we weren't direct in New Orleans, but still we had a lot of effects here. The main thing, I think, is to have, uh, one, identification on your animal, uh, whether it's a cat or a dog. The microchips are very important, and they can, they're can they fairly reasonable as far as cost and can help to identify uh, your pet should become separated. And keep records, uh, and they say to keep in a Ziploc or some other waterproof container uh, your health records on your pet, medications that they need, and uh, certainly a supply of food back up. So those are all things to, to consider. Uh, hopefully we won't have any that type of devastation here in Jackson, but you never know. That's right. And also I would make sure that the, the pet carrier is in good working condition. I know in, in my case I bought it when I first bought my cat or first got my cat, and 
the last time I took him to the vet, he was getting a little annoyed that he was sort of being pushed into a what is kind of a small uh, carrier. So you want to make sure uh, that when they're carrier, they've got a kind of enough move to, room to move around that sort of thing so that they're not too cramped. Right. Uh, also, Libby, we have an early emailer, and it's uh, Gloria who has sent in a picture of a frog or a toad that she would like to be have identified, and it really is striking. It's kind of a, a, a bright bronze color. Uh, any thoughts on, on what that might be? Yeah, and I'm going to look it up here in a second, but I think that's a fowler's toad. Okay. But I'll I'll give her a definite before the day is out <laughs> okay. about that. Yeah. All right, so very good. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show. It's another tiny one, as we Yeah, it's another little <laughs> bitty toad. Yeah. Uh, Steve Peterson is our guest this morning. Steve, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Um, so uh, when did you get an interest in, in birds and bird watching? Probably when I was a little kid, probably, and then really after I graduated from Millsaps back in the olden days <laughs> uh, and got, because I graduated in biology and I've always liked nature. And one of the things that really got me interested was going on the old-time nature trails in, in LaFleur's Bluff Park. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been going in there ever since, well, since I was in college. And uh, it's a, just a fascinating place. I mean, it's a real treasure. So I like to get in there anytime I can. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that on our, which is supposed that we're going to talk about hummingbirds, I learned a lot about the, the uh, regular uh, ruby throat hummingbirds coming just on that upper nature trail with the blooms and everything like that. So uh, in Mississippi, how many species of hummingbirds are folks uh, liable to see? Well, I would say for sure the uh, ruby throat, which is our spring resident, and then as far as the uh, winter and migrants that are coming through, you probably most likely see the rufous these all seem to come in from the west, and then there's others like the the uh, the, the buff bellied and, and uh, black chin, and others that that show up from time to time. Uh, I'm all people ask me sometimes why do birds go this way and go that way, and of course the answer is they have wings, and uh, you know they use them. From from what I understand, some of these winter visitors will show up to the same place year after year, and that seems to be pretty much true with all the uh, different species of uh, uh, birds wintering wherever you are. Um, and what are the, what are other sorts of birds uh, that we're seeing um, in Mississippi at this time of year? Uh, as far as hummingbirds? Well, just uh, other birds in that, uh, as well, as, in, in addition to the hummingbirds. Uh, most are, are summer birds, uh, things like the prothonotary warbler, uh, uh, the different water birds such as egrets and herons and and, uh, uh, and hingas, and uh, uh, your, the, the normal yard birds, robins, towhees, and... and uh, uh, bluebirds, uh, cardinals, all the stuff that nests. And you've probably got a lot of young ones that are getting ready to head out on their own once uh, fall gets here. So as a seasoned bird watcher, if someone is uh, maybe just interested in, in trying to pay more attention to nature and, and things when they are out and about, uh, what would be some tips for sort of getting started and, and, and sharpening your, your bird watching eye? 
just go out a, a lot. Just go out. Get a good pair of binoculars and just go out and keep going out. And one thing, at least for me, going out to to LaFleur's Bluff, which at that time was Riverside Park back in the old days, uh, you learn the area and you pretty much learn what's going to be there and uh, and when it's going to be there. Uh, so uh, that's... Uh, that's that's my main thing is is not necessarily running out and trying to see everything mm-hmm. but start learning and building up from your your close areas that you, you you're familiar with and and go that way at least it worked for me and I, you know I was when we talk about that the added benefit of that is uh if you're out and about and walking nature trails and that sort of thing not only you're enjoying uh, the great natural resources that Mississippi has to offer but walking is something that is certainly beneficial to everybody and you're burning calories and you're out out in the sun, in the fresh air and it's really good for your health and I I think your mental health as well so a uh, good point there start to start local and and see what you find just in in your area around where you live it's like we got a caller on the line, so why don't we welcome Jim in from Jackson to the show. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. I just bought a hummingbird feeder and also bought some uh, a mix, a powder mix, uh, to go in the hummingbird feeder, and it has a red tip to it. Uh, is that attractive to hummingbirds, or is that necessary when I replace that with just sugar and water? Well, I would... I just go the sugar water myself. Uh, the the thing that attracts them is the feeder. If there's red on the feeder, that's that's what will attract them. There are a number of cases where somebody has had something, say, like a, a red carnation on or a red tie or a red hat, and the hummingbird shows up to that. Uh, so it's it's essentially the color of the feeder rather than the color of the dye. And, and I think it's better just... The, the simpler, uh, w- you know, one one part sugar, four parts water formula. I th- I think that's just the the best way, keeping it simple and more natural too. Yeah. How long should I keep the hummingbird feeder out? How long is the season before they take off? I'd keep it out all year, to tell you the truth, because you might get some of the winter birds. Uh, a uh, late friend of mine kept them up all year, and he wound up having several different species of the winter birds that that show up during the winter months and and so he just kept them up all year all right jim thanks for calling in this morning this is creature comforts on mpb think radio we're visiting today with steve peterson as we learn more about hummingbirds dr major here ready for some pet questions and we always like your wildlife questions or observations the things that you see when you've been out and about in mississippi the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue the program. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio.
Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're visiting with Steve Peterson, and we're talking about hummingbirds. So if you have a hummingbird question or maybe a, a bird-watching question in general, Steve might be able to help you. Dr. Major here, ready for some pet questions, and we always like your wildlife questions and observations as well. The number to call if you'd like to join the conversation, and our phone lines are open, it's one Eight seven seven MPB ring. Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always email the show as well. Animals at mpbonline.org. Steve, before the break, we were talking to a caller from Jackson and uh, talking a little bit about um, bird uh, feeders and that sort of thing. What are some tips on, on feeder maintenance? Uh, is it Should you clean it out uh, occasionally? What are some other things to keep in mind with bird feeders? Uh, I'd clean it out uh no no later than say a week you know if you know every four to four to seven days clean it out wash it out with warm water if you need to if there's a little mold a little bleach will help uh and the, and of course the last caller asked about the uh mix the the ones that are are red in color you don't need that mm-hmm. r- red you, i mean in it as i said the the feeder is the is the thing that attracts them? That's why they have the little the little flower things on them, so so it'll uh, it will attract them. Uh, but the, you know, the hummingbirds are pretty bold. They'll come up to a lot of different things, especially if it's something that to their mind says this is a possible plant. So they they scoot right up. What about uh, maybe location in a yard? How high up? That sort of thing. Well. Uh, I think most people like to put them near a window so they can see them from inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may, if you're successful at it, you may have the uh, the birds fighting each other, and you, you'll have to wind up sp- spreading out the feeders uh, and just have to experiment to mm-hmm. see because they will claim the feeders as their own, and uh, which is natural. That's a way of survival. And they'll uh, uh, chase other birds away from it. And, uh, in fact, uh, it wasn't, I think it was just the other day, I was walking my dog, and the neighbor had a feeder up there, and I heard the hummingbird chatter, a little chatter that they do, and there was it was a hummingbird going one way and the other perching on the feeder uh, triumphantly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I have two up right now, but sometimes I put three if I get enough, because yeah. I just hate to see them fight too much. But now my favorite way to feed them is still with plants. If mm-hmm. you can put in mm-hmm. the right plants, exactly. but I do keep feeders up because it's hard to tell how, you know, how much food they're getting in any place. And once you've attracted them, I kind of like to keep feeding them. But I like to have plants out. That just seems like it's probably more healthy because it's natural. You know, they're bound to be getting other things in that nectar mm-hmm. that they're not getting out of and, and of course sugar they water. they do feed on other stuff besides plants and the nectar they they will feed on insects and such when they're when they've got young in the nest are there any kind of uh plants in particular that that would be uh that they like (laughs) i have trumpet vine and Mm -hmm. i have all those there's about three different things that they call hummingbird bush i think salvia is good for Mm -hmm. me mimosa trees they they tend to love a mimosa Mm -hmm. Uh, what t- was I watching them on the other day? I have some lantana because it's kind of a, mm-hmm. that's an invasive thing that I don't 
although if you come to my yard, you would think I loved it, I guess. But I have some that are historic plants from people's gardens that have passed away that I can't get rid of because have that connection. And I've noticed the Hummers love Lantana as well. Yeah, I remember now the uh, Felder Rushing, our, our Gestalt gardener, Friday yeah. mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio. Uh, he's had questions, I think, in the last couple of weeks about the hummingbird plants, and I guess, or bushes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're right, I think there are a number of different things uh, that are called that, but uh, seem to attract the, the little fellows. Yeah, and I, I think all three or four of those bushes work as hummingbird plants. Honeysuckle is good. Yeah, uh-huh. honeysuckle. Uh, we have that uh, major wheeler, uh, red. Honeysuckle, they love that. That's, yeah, and that's such a beautiful thing to grow. Yeah, they would like that. We've got uh, Deborah on the line from Germantown. Good morning, Deborah. You're on the air. Oh, good morning. Hi. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just recently had found a little hummingbird nest up around the pool. It's, it's been a Japanese maple that's over like a little waterfall. And someone told me it's because of the noise that it uh, keeps the blue jays from invading their nest. Uh, so I called Strawberry Plains because I actually saw a little little hummingbird going in there and sitting on the nest. And uh-huh. I wondered if they, she could have been laying eggs this late. But they said she might possibly. And um, I was just excited. And I always thought you were supposed to pull your feeders a certain time so that they migrated away to the south. And I'm so glad to find out we feed them all year round now. Yeah, I think that migration instinct is strong enough that if, if they need to leave, they're going to leave. They'll yeah. they'll go. They don't. They really don't have any choice. That instinct kicks in. Uh, if you've ever watched migration, I mean, you would think that when a bird comes across the Gulf of Mexico and lands, it would stay there for a few days. But sometimes within a few hours, they're on their way again. All right. Yeah. Well, in some of the plants this spring, I noticed uh, I've got a lot of uh, that red Greca salvia. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they they actually didn't go to the feeder because I've got a lot of that out and they they love that and someone told me to get a shrimp plant <laughs> so I put one out and they go to that over anything else in my yard yeah and we were just talking about that we think that um it's got to be better for them to get the nectar anyway than the the juice in your feeder you can keep that feeder out as a backup mm-hmm. but uh, doing the plants to feed them with growing the right plants I think is real important yeah well what else could they eat during the winter well, that's part of why we suggested keeping feeders exactly, exactly. up in the winter because it's hard to feed them in the yeah. winter. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a plant that's going to give them any nectar in the winter. Uh uh-uh. uh So maybe that's when they eat a lot of bugs too. I hope. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they do. They do eat bugs, and uh, of course, the feeder is, is the 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 ruby throats that we have now are going to be gone to the tropics. And so the the other ones that we might possibly see during the winter months, and I think anything after November the 7th is supposed to be a winter hummingbird. And uh, uh, they come mostly from the west uh, uh, United Uh States. Yeah, that's that's what Strawberry Plains was telling me. But they didn't say, like, what variety they are. Do you have any idea what variety they are? Uh, of the hummingbirds, uh, uh-huh. the most common winter bird, winter hummer would be a rufous hummingbird, and it's well named. It has sort of a rufous tint, a reddish orangish tint to to its plumage. There are others that uh, things like the buff bellied and black chin calliope that that show up from time to time. I I would think the one I've seen the most. Uh, and, and I'm not. I haven't seen that many of the winter birds, but the one I've seen the most is definitely the rufous. 
and uh, that would be the one that you'd most likely get. But of course, leaving those feeders out, uh, you know, once they learn that the feeder's there, they're gonna they're gonna stick by it. All right, Deborah, thanks for the call. You know, we talked about whether the the uh, the pull of migration is stronger than uh, wanting to stay around the feeder. And, and now, my love of desserts. I know if I were a hummingbird, I think I would be one of the ones that wanted to stay around the feeder and get the sugar water. That's the cherry pie. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, during the break, Java, our producer reminded us, Libby, that uh, if uh, not just hummingbirds, but if you're someone uh, that maybe wants to get your family involved in bird watching and that sort of thing, that there's a great bird watching station at the there museum. There is definitely mm-hmm. inside the museum, so you can use it year round, and they're pretty good about keeping the feeders stocked outside that window. And there are lots of bird watching aids inside with you. There are binoculars that you can try out and play with. And there is a little bit of instruction written there as to what to look for. And there are pictures and identifications of the most common birds that you would see in your yard or see there in the park. So it's a little way to get you started. We joked there a lot because we put small... Uh, sets of binoculars for a long time there and but when we put a large pair for some reason that's what the kids want they'll fight over the big binoculars they want those big ones to go up on their eyes it might be hard to hold but i guess they they seem more scientific or something i don't know but they're really cute with the big binoculars and sometimes they look through the wrong end and that's educational too they get to they get to get a different perspective uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Steve Peterson, and we're talking about hummingbirds. Uh, Steve is an excellent, an incredible bird watcher, so I think any kind of general bird question he might be able to help you with today. Also, Dr. Major here, better to take some pet questions and any wildlife questions or observations that you want to share with us. Call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can always email the show animals at mpbonline.org. So, Steve, we mentioned the myth of uh, birds not migrating if the feeder's up all year. What are some other uh, common hummingbird myths? Oh, I can't remember for sure offhand, but I, I think the, the biggest myth is that they have to have the red dye. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my favorite three words when talking about hummingbirds is no no red dye you don't need that again they're attracted to the flower they're not attracted to the nectar uh they come i remember once when i was uh had a second job at a building supply place and a hummingbird got inside the building and i borrowed a lady's uh cart she'd been in the the garden shop and she had a bunch of little uh brightly colored plants and i just Went in a circle, and the hummingbird swooped down, and I just took the buggy and pushed it on outside and and, and shoot him away, and he flew off. Uh, so it's, you know, they don't, they can't taste or smell the liquid to know what, what it is. They go to the flower. What about the idea that they migrate on the backs of geese? Oh, no. that's my favorite <laughs> no. myth. They, yeah, they, that, that, yeah. that would probably come from the fact that a hummingbird, it's kind of like a chihuahua of the, of the bird world. I mean, it's, they're fearsome. Mm-hmm. They, they will chase anything. And a hummingbird could be, you know, dive bombing another bird. And uh, so, but no, that's, they, they have an incredible amount of energy. Those wings are going 60 times a second. Hmm. If not more, in fact, uh, in, in fact, uh, M, uh, ETV has had some wonderful programs 
recently about hummingbirds and hummingbird studies as as to the physiology of of how they they go they they uh they they go nonstop across the gulf of mexico until they uh now they they might stop at an oil rig or mm-hmm. or a large boat a lot of a lot of uh birds do that they may but that instinct is is so powerful it just drives them uh to to go and and so you don't have to worry about it. Bird, birds don't have to think that much. They're very instinctive creatures. I mean, they can learn, but they don't have to think that much. They just they do. They just do. All right. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. Our buddy Tim from Louisiana on the line. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, y'all. Nice topic. Thank you. Um, I, I, I have seen uh, many, many hummingbirds arrive on a rig off of the Texas coast, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I was a kid then, and I was working oil supply, and I climbed up the rig because Steve Doors was unloading our boat, and we had some layover time. And boy, how did you know? I I saw this cloud coming towards me, and it was amazing. You know, probably two thousand birds or more, just a lit on the rig for a few minutes, and then rest and go. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've seen them from uh, at. The um, Sunny Bono National Wildlife Refuge down at the bottom of the Salton Sea at below sea level. And I've seen them in lupine meadows way up in the Sierras, you know. So they've got a real range of altitude as well. Uh, yeah, that's exactly, a good point. exactly. Yeah. Hummingbirds, they're found, you know, all over the, the north and, south, and central and south America. They're, they're up in the Andes. In fact, I think some of the larger species are up in are up in the mountains, and they yeah. have some some incredible adaptations to to living in these different habitats. You know, desert, yeah. jungle. I mean, we think of them as maybe garden birds or possibly uh, jungle birds. Uh, uh, you know, I've seen some so, uh, some different species in in the. Uh, forests of Trinidad and and Belize and yes uh, yes 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 but uh, and in then and they're in the desert. In fact, some of the birds that we get are coming from desert areas that they they spend their their breeding time in. Yes. Have right. you noticed uh, on a, another subject? Have you noticed an increase? Uh, you know, a good recruitment in Mississippi kite. I'm seeing a lot of them this year. Uh, I don't. I don't know for sure. Well, we've got we got young ones out, uh, and they breed. Uh, we've had uh, we've had I've had kite nests in in my yard uh, several years. They breed. They uh, uh, they're 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 very adaptable as as is most wildlife as to live in a city, in a habitat habitat place. Uh, and in fact, we had one in the in the park. In, in uh, yeah, Mays we Lake, had, we, we had, had one in the, uh, that they they were uh, nesting in the park, right next to the parking lot. Uh, I've had them in my backyard. I think that what we may be seeing is the young that are flying and uh, breaking loose uh, or being pushed out of their parents' territory, uh, and and they they that may be account for some of it, or we just may have had a good year for kites and maybe a lot of bugs, a lot of insects for them to catch. 
All right, Tim, always good to hear from you. We need to take another quick break. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Steve Peterson, learning more about hummingbirds. Dr. Major here, also ready to take some pet questions. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring The phone number is one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're talking about hummingbirds today with our guest, Steve Peterson. So if you have a question about hummingbirds or maybe uh, you've seen some in your yard and want to report in, give us a call. Also, Dr. Major, ready to take some pet questions. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. Before we head back to the phone line, Steve, is there a time of day when uh, hummingbirds are more active and you're more likely to see them in and around the feeders? I would assume uh, early early hours, uh, say sunrise, and, and uh, but they're, they're active all day, especially if there's more than one hummingbird around because mm. they're going to be chasing each other away from their, their food sources. Uh, you know, Mostly, I would expect it. I hear them a lot, and and uh, just the little Twitter that they do, uh, almost any time of the day. But I, as with all wildlife, early mornings, uh, dusk, that sort of area. Of course, there's always during the the uh, hot hours of the you know noontime, lunch hour. There's always. Uh, a decrease in activity mm-hmm. is probably because of the sun. Yeah. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. We've got Kathleen from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Good rainy morning. <laughs> I'm wondering if we have to make little bitty raincoats for all those little hummingbirds. <laughs> um, I just wanted to mention that uh, four o'clock are also a great source for the hummingbirds. Okay. Uh, zinnias and morning glories, moonflowers. And if you plant the zinnias, if you plant several levels, like the Lilliputians, the medium, and the giants, the bees go on all of them. And I'm pretty sure hummingbirds eat bees, right? They're pretty small. to They, they might chase one, oh. but I don't think they would... Uh, Eat them. I think they go after really the smaller, and, and one smaller more insects, gnats. little they're gnats. Like, they're gnat things. eaters. Yeah. yeah. One more quick comment. I know your your drive is over for the year or for this section, but Mr. Farrell and crew, our country, <laughs> out here in the country rather, and in Louisiana, I know this show is so apropos because you have people that have pets and different things that relate to that. Nowhere else can you call in. And I want you to know that I thoroughly enjoy it, and it's a very quality show. We get the good stuff. 
Thank right. you so much. All right. Thanks, Kathleen, for the Thanks. kind words. Always good to hear from you. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, talking today about hummingbirds with our guest, Steve Peterson. Back to the phones li- phone lines we go. Next to Calhoun County, Dudley's called in today. Good morning, Dudley. Good morning. Go ahead. I, I ditto exactly what the, the last caller said. This is a wonderful topic, it, the hummingbirds. My my question, uh, really, it's, it's kind of hard to explain I think it's instinctive, but how do the hummingbirds remember how to get to the feeder year after year after year? Uh, I would, I'm not at all an expert on uh, how birds orient themselves, and, and but there are lots of different ways that migrating birds in general will find their way back and forth. Uh, things like the position of the stars, the position of the sun, the day length, uh, which is going to tell them when and where to go. Uh, there are even some studies about magnetic fields, and, and uh, I think in homing pigeons and, and, and things like that. Uh, again, I, I think that while some birds can't do learn to a, a certain amount, uh, I, they just... They'll get, I guess, they'll get to a, a, a certain place, and their instinct plus their their intelligence tells them this is the place. Uh, it's probably, I, I would imagine, be kind of hard to study little tiny hummingbirds as far as their uh, magnetic fields is, are concerned and and things like that. But probably uh, all the different cues that I mentioned, like you know, stars, sun. They that. Like that. Yeah, it, it's probably a mixture of, of all those different uh, theories. And then also they're scouting around looking for red because that's exactly. an instinct. Yeah. So it may be that they don't know exactly where yeah. your feeder is, but they've come to that same patch of woods but, but and on they the other hand, and see the red. Yeah, you know? hummingbird banders have found that they do return to the same place, the same wintering place. But if you're watching them, they're very busy. Yeah. They're always on the look. And uh, you you may see the same hummingbird. I don't know. I don't. But mm-hmm. uh, on one side of the house, and then next time he's over on the other, mm-hmm. just scouting. And they do that. All right, Dudley. Good question. Thanks for calling in. Let's continue on. Next, we're going to go to Jackson. David is on the line. Good morning, David. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Good morning. Um, actually, my question is very similar to the last one. Um, I was late getting a feeder out this year. I just and we this. Uh, a uh, hummingbird came, and uh, where we have the feeder typically is under an eave. It's, there's no flowers nearby. It's in a pretty densely wooded area. Uh, the neighbor has some feeders, but um, this hummingbird came and looked in the window and stayed there for quite a long, came back over a couple of days until I got a feeder out there. There was nothing <laughs> out there but a rope. And I just convinced that this must have been one from last year knowing there was a feeder there is that i guess i say that's kind of hard to understand whether that's possible or not isn't that amazing i I think quite possible as i said they do learn i uh i don't know where hummingbirds rank on the on the smartness scale of but they they yes they do i've seen that happen uh plenty of times uh with hummingbirds they 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 seem and if the feeder is empty they tend to show up Right. Uh, they learned that you'll put stuff out. Mm-hmm. Well, there was no feeder there at all. There was nothing really that, except a, a, a little clothesline rope, mm-hmm. to indicate that there ever would be a feeder there. 
Uh, it was pretty amazing. And then with a brain smaller than a pea. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Was yeah. Somehow function. Well, <laughs> I guess there's no way to really get in their brain. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the call, David. He was probably thinking to himself, "Come on, David, get this feeder out <laughs> yeah. here. I don't have all day." <laughs> uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about hummingbirds with our guest Steve Peterson. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to join in the conversation, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two. Seven four six four. Next up, we've got Rip in Jackson on the line. Good morning, Rip. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. A uh, couple of uh, questions for you. Uh, the difference between males and female hummingbirds. I don't have ready access to Google, and I was wondering because I see a lot of small kind of green, dusky-looking hummingbirds coming about. But I don't really see the what I would consider you know the more vibrant-colored male hummingbirds. Well, yeah, the 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 dusky ones, as you refer to them, would be either female or a young of the year. The the males yeah. are the ones that, uh, like mo- most birds, the males are the yeah. the uh, bright ones. They they attract the mate and defend the territory, and the and the females are the ones that are laying on the eggs. And so, the less noticeable they are, the better it works out for the uh, likely. Ha- Hatching of the eggs and, and the, survival and of the And the immature males are going to look a lot like the females, yeah. right? Yeah, they'll yeah. look like the females. Once they, uh, they'll, they'll be chased off, you know, if, 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 uh, if, especially if it's two males, they'll, they'll go after each other. Or the, right. right. Yeah. But yeah, that's. Yeah, I was just wondering because I don't really, I don't see the males much, but the females, they'll be all over the feeders. And it could be, you know, it could be because they have eggs in the nest or whatever. I also see them during this time, well, earlier, they would be catching insects. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming that they're taking those to the young. I'm, I would, yes. Uh, to grow, I, I would imagine. I think so that's a another, very good assumption. Another phenomenon I saw, this is when I was living out in Georgia, but it was the most fascinating thing. We had a really slow rain where there's like a drop every square foot or something, one of those. And the hummingbirds would actually take a drop of rain out of the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Drake, out to that. Well, how do you catch that, you little dickens? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it to save my life. But. Well, remember he's got a he's got a a wing beat of about sixty wing beats a second, and of course, and they can go every which way. They can go backwards, forwards, hover, and I suspect that that they probably see things maybe in a different. Uh, way than we do, you know. They may see this the uh, raindrops in in uh, slow motion, mm-hmm. it possibly, and uh, to be able to catch them, or they just are are lucky. <laughs> All right, Rip. Good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. Let's take one final break this hour. We've got some phone calls to get to, but we still have some phone lines open as well. We're talking about hummingbirds today. Give us a call to join the conversation. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. We'll be back with more after this. I tell you, huh? An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, seven to ten weeknights on MPB Music Radio. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Steve Peterson as we talk about hummingbirds, but uh, Dr. Major here ready to take some pet questions as well. Before we head back to the phone lines, we had uh, a call. Uh, Dr. Major said that uh, someone who owned a cocker spaniel thought that their dog was being harassed by some sort of an owl, and so the question is, does that seem likely? Are owls that aggressive where they might, in some sort of circumstance, try to attack a dog? It's, it's possible, uh, it, uh, especially during, near a nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if the, the size of the owl was mentioned, but the only time I've ever been swooped at by an owl was a, a screech owl, which is the small. But they're a, a, little, a little tiger as far as you know, mm-hmm. they, they swoop. I think most of the bat swoop, you know, people getting bats in their hair is probably due to screech owls. But, uh, yeah, if you're near a nest or young, uh, and maybe young are, are, near, are branching and not, and not flying yet, but are close to the ground, I can see a, an owl swooping at a dog. We've seen some some actual claw claw injuries mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. on small dogs really? yeah. uh, before, and it may be, uh, as you say, a nest or just territorial uh, that they could. don't want the dog in their area. It could be, but uh, interesting. And of course, the other thing that we know is that they can't pick up uh, really a dog or a cat. I believe the thing was what twenty five percent of their body weight. Some, something, something like something that. Like yeah, that. yeah. So. I have heard that people afraid that that uh, an eagle or an owl or an eagle or something will get their small dog, but it's not very likely, is but it? If you ever had an encounter with the uh, talons, you know that they can do some damage regardless of whether they try to pick <laughs> you up. Exactly. Yeah. I've got a scar on my forefinger from an accidental uh, yeah. talon going into it from a barred owl, and they don't have the biggest ones. We go back to the phone lines and invite John from Faraday into the conversation. Good morning, John. Good morning. Go ahead. Well, uh, about a month ago, I was lucky enough to have a hummingbird in my hands before he flew off. I work in a building with a 100-yard-long warehouse. A co-worker of mine was emptying the trash can where they throw their Gatorade cups. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hummingbird flew out of that trash can, went about 20 yards, and lit right in front of my feet, I kind of cut my hands, and the hummingbird jumped up and grabbed onto one of my fingers. So I walked toward the entrance of the warehouse. Uh, another co-worker whipped out her cell phone and took a photo of the hummingbird <laughs> perched on my finger, and I walked across the parking lot to where there was a tree, and just as I lifted it up near the branches so the hummingbird could hop off, it flew off of my finger and flew Almost straight up, completely out of sight. Hmm. Oh, that's yeah. great! You did a good deed. Yeah, that's a. I had a. I was doing work at the museum uh, once, and a woman brought in a, what she thought was a dying hummingbird, and apparently it had run into a, a window and was stunned. And I put it on my finger and just stood outside till it, it he regained his, his senses and he flew off. Uh, it's it's pretty fascinating to have a little humble something that small on your hand or on your finger. All right, John, thanks for sharing that story. Uh, glad to hear from you this morning. We've got another call to get to, and it's uh, Mikey in Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. 
Hey, good morning. Um, I want to reiterate what Kathleen said about all those flowers, especially 4 o'clock, because they're really, really easy for us to grow. And as your expert informed us, um, they open at about 4 o'clock in the evening, and they stay open all night until, you know, in the morning when the sun comes up. So they should be especially effective in feeding hummingbirds, I would think, right? And, And for moths, too. That's a great plant for moths. If you want to watch a pretty moth, it's just a great plant for humans. If you want to smell something that smells good when you come in in the evening and wake up in the morning, <laughs> too. Um, um, but, but anyway, um, like I said, Kathleen stole most of my thunder as usual. That's smart. <laughs> um, but Dr. Troy, I heard from uh, another animal lover the other day that the fleas that are on cats are different from the fleas that are on dogs, that one is round and one is flat. Is this why there's um, a difference in the sorts of medications? In other words, you can't certainly don't want to put dog flea stuff on a cat. That's an interesting question. In fact, the most common flea is the cat flea. Uh, it's probably 90-plus percent of all the fleas are the cat flea, uh, and most of the ones on dogs would also be. The reason you can't put or shouldn't put dog flea medication on cats is that they're very sensitive and have a different tolerance for that. So you could theoretically kill a cat uh, with a strong dog uh, topical. So be careful with that. That's a great point. And I think what you're seeing are different sizes of fleas based on their uh, age, if you will, and whether they're full of blood or not. I would say, though, that the majority of the fleas are cat fleas, and they are the ones that we see on our dogs. All right. Mikey, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. What is now uh, Tropical Depression, Harvey, is uh, impacting parts of Mississippi. And, uh, Java, you've got some weather information for us. Yeah, we're breaking in um, just a little bit. It's not any warnings or uh, watches, but we do have a significant weather advisory for northwestern Panola County and southwestern Tate County, both in uh, northwestern Mississippi, 944 Strong Thunder thunderstorm uh, with weak rotation was located near Strayhorn and uh, the possibility of a quick forming tornado um, um, is possible. That's why we have this significant weather advisory until 1015 a.m. So um, just stay close to MPB Think Radio and we will keep you posted. All right, very good. And, yeah, that's uh, the storm uh, still uh, impacting the portions of the state, uh, hopefully uh, by uh, I guess tomorrow, maybe or later tonight, uh, that that threat will be away. But I saw that uh, there is already another hurricane forming um, off the coast of Africa. I think that it's way too early to determine uh, what path it could take. But as we mentioned earlier in the show, this is the active time of year for hurricanes. So uh, pre- be prepared, uh, both you and your pets. Uh, know what to do uh, if severe weather does impact your area. Uh, we're visiting today on Creature Comforts with Steve Peterson. He's our hummingbird expert. Steve, earlier in the show, we had talked about the idea of, you know, how territorial they are and that you might get a bully hummingbird uh, that wants to maybe drive off some of the other hummingbirds from the the feeder he's, you know, adopted as his. Would the solution be to just maybe spread out, try to put up another area where, where they could feed from? That's the, that's about the only thing you can do with, with the feeders is you have to learn by trial and error mostly is, is to keep them uh, uh, satisfied, and I suspect by if you don't hear the little hummingbird chatter, uh, that you probably have succeeded once you've spread them out. Uh, 
I think the average house probably, you know, you could probably put four, maybe five feeders around it. And uh, but since I think a lot of people like to have them near a window, right, and where they can be, see them, and uh, so you've got to balance what what's good for the birds, which what with what is enjoyable for you. I've got two that are probably eight feet apart, and I can see them both from where mm-hmm. I eat on the screen porch, and that seems to be far enough, seven, eight feet maybe the most and that seems to be far enough that they um they'll feed and often i'll have a couple on each one feeding at the same time Mm -hmm. uh we'd mentioned nests earlier would uh, hummingbirds use a birdhouse uh no they they build a a nifty looking little nest out of lichen and other small materials almost like a little bump uh on a on a branch tree branch and uh i mean it's just a marvel of, of natural engineering when you get to see one, but just a little bump, maybe oh, a couple inches high, a hmm. couple inches wide, uh, with with lichen and and, and uh, little filaments, and they'll nest uh, maybe one or two eggs, tiny little eggs. Yeah, I was going to ask about you know because they're so small. How how big is a is a hummingbird egg? Hummingbird egg would be. Smaller than, say, an M&M or Skittles. Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, it, 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 just tiny, a little white egg. I found them more than once by following the female. Mm-hmm. The male's not going to go back very That's often. Right. The male's not as active as some males are feeding. But if you follow that female, especially like the month of July, where they're really exactly. that's the middle of nesting season, and watch her a few times, you can usually find where the nest is. Looks almost like a walnut kind yeah, of shell. It's about mm-hmm. that size. And what about the life cycle? How long would the average hummingbird live, or is that something that we can track? Uh, well, if you band, if and there are a number of hummingbird banders that can band uh, a bird. I don't know ex- offhand exactly the uh, the uh, record for hummingbirds, but I would imagine several years. Uh, but uh, and. Uh, you know, once of course they're by the time they can fly and the end of the breeding season, they're grown, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so you're looking at the dusky, as one caller put it, the dusky uh, sort of pale, nondescript females and and the young, and uh, as opposed to the the brightly colored males. So, yeah, I guess uh, 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 the banding is about the only way to to uh, find out exactly how old they are, especially if they come back. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's land, water, and wildlife, and from contributions from listeners like you. And again, a big thanks to folks who made contributions during our recent fundraiser. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Steve Peterson, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's MPB's Season Pass. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.